0: I believe I speak for Jonathan and our families when I say thank you for the financial gift at Christmas. There's a book written a few years ago by John Piper entitled Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. It's written to pastors to encourage them and to equip them. Your gift this morning reminds me that you are a church of great grace because you've given a gift, though we are not professionals. So thank you for that extension of grace. You're very gracious toward me and toward Jonathan, um, and we thank you and we love you for that. Our message this morning comes from Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. And as you turn there, we begin with a question, what then will this child turn out to be? At age three, he played the piano. At age four, he taught himself violin. That was the same age, by the way. He composed his first piano concerto. His father Leopold saw this great talent in his son, no doubt wondering, what will my Wolfgang Mozart turn out to be? Consider a different father. He was so intent on his son learning the languages that he banished all math books from the house. To which our students, high five. But nevertheless, this young son excelled in math, in physics, and applied sciences. His senior, Pascal, no doubt wondered, what will my little Pascal turn out to be? One other father named Ruiz surely asked a similar question. He had sketched a pigeon to which his son came along and painted over, far exceeding his father's artistic ability some say that this son had learned to draw before he could talk his dad must have asked what will this pablo picasso turn out to be in our text today we meet a man named zacharias who answers the question asked of his son what then will this child turn out to be the message comes from luke chapter 1 verses 67 through 79 This would be an essential, if not overlooked, portion of the Christmas story. Luke chapter 2 will contain that familiar event, that beloved account of the birth of Jesus, but Luke will set that up through 80 verses. That's right. 80 verses build up to the actual Christmas story, and that happens throughout Luke chapter 1. And what happens here is Luke is framing this account through the use of a camera, so to speak. And what he does is he's going to pan back and forth between Jesus, who is God in the flesh, and John the Baptist, his forerunner or announcer. As this gospel gets underway, John's birth is predicted. Then Jesus' birth is predicted. John's mom celebrates her pregnancy Jesus' mom celebrates her pregnancy. John is born and Jesus is born. You get the picture. So this morning, I want to turn not yet to the stable. That's next week. But instead, to the birth of John. Specifically answering the question, what then will this child turn out to be? As we do, my goal today is to frame this beloved Christmas story within the larger picture of Scripture. To borrow from our camera imagery, we want to go from this, on the Christmas story, on the nativity scene, to this. To see the big picture, the beauty of the build-up to that night. This is the unfolding, after all, of God's salvation for all people. It's the unfolding of God's salvation for you. Maybe you haven't considered this before, or maybe it's been a while, but I want you to see that today. I want you to see how there has been a buildup to that night. Christmas, then, is not some isolated incident, just confined to one night in December. But what happened that night in Bethlehem, that's part of a much bigger production that's been taking place for centuries. And as Zacharias then prophesies, We're going to learn three means that God has used to deliver that salvation. Luke chapter 1, verse 67. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. On our first few verses, God speaks redemption through a mute mouth. You heard that right. God speaks redemption through a mute mouth. Now, To understand that, we need to go back into chapter 1 a bit. We need to do a rewind. This is, after all, Zacharias the mute prophet. It's been about nine months since he's been able to speak. And one of the first things out of his mouth is what we just read, verses 68 through 79. But how did all this happen? Why was he mute or unable to speak? Well, to rewind, Zacharias served as a temple priest, Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth were, quote, advanced in years. They were older, and they had no children. verse 7, Elizabeth was barren. So Zacharias is chosen by random, not random, to go in and serve in the temple. His role was to burn incense. Statistics of the time say there was about 18,000 priests serving. Any one of them could be chosen by Random. So the lot fell to Zacharias. He would be the one to go in and burn incense. This would be a huge privilege, a once in a lifetime opportunity for the priest. And while he's there at the altar, while he is lighting this incense, he looks off to his right, and there stands an angel. And this angel tells Zacharias that Elizabeth, his wife, will bear a son. They're going to name him John. And the angel will go on to convey additional prophecies, other predictions of what this child will be. And in a moment that I assume he wants to take back, he asks a question, evidently one of unbelief. How will I know this for certain? Verse 19 I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Now flash forward. Remember, Luke's moving back and forth. Jesus, John, Jesus, John. We're moving now to the end of chapter one. Elizabeth gives birth to a baby. They name him John, meaning Yahweh is gracious or God is grace. In verse 66, the neighbors ask, what then will this child turn out to be? Zacharias provides an answer. It's our text this morning. And much to his relief, Gabriel's word stood true. He's able to speak again. And as he does, he identifies something very special that God is doing. This is essentially a praise that he gives to God. Notice in verse 67, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is apparently a family affair for he and his family. In verse 15, Gabriel predicted that John, the son, he would be filled with the Holy Spirit, while yet in his mother's womb... In verse 41, Zacharias' wife was filled with the Spirit. She heard Mary or encountered Mary. And now Zacharias is filled with the Holy Spirit. And just so you know, the Holy Spirit in our era, in this day and age, permanently indwells all who believe upon Jesus Christ. We might use the terminology fills or indwells. 1 Corinthians, in fact, calls our bodies temples were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but it has not always been this way. Take Zacharias' era, for example. The Holy Spirit used to indwell or to come upon someone, and this would be for a particular task or a particular purpose. And for Zacharias, it's so he may prophesy. He's going to speak forth or utter divine revelation, words inspired by God. And as much as this will be about his son John, this is much, much more about God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, he says. These words are lifted right out of 1 Kings. In fact, so much of our text today is an allusion or a quote from the Old Testament. And as Zacharias reflects on the Old Testament, he's he's. Considering what's going on and how all of these things are now coming together and intersecting. They're reaching a a culmination or a climax. And he sees God's salvation. Not that God wasn't always saving by faith throughout those Old Testament years. Certainly he was. But rather now, the promised Messiah will come. And Zacharias, his own son, he's going to play a major role in this. Now, salvation is a major theme in this prophecy. And notice in verse 69, there's salvation. The beginning of verse 71 is salvation. Then again, in verse 77, there's similar words used of salvation. There's redemption in verse 68 and rescue in verse 74. Each of these words all make a unique contribution to the concept. There's some overlap in what they mean for sure, but each offers a very distinct help to us in understanding God's plan for redemption. I take the word salvation, for example. It means quite simply deliverance. In verse 71, it's a salvation or a deliverance from our enemies. God here is moving forward. He has a plan to deliver his people from their physical enemies. But we also need to interject here while we're here that the salvation that we need is deliverance from our biggest enemy, and that enemy is God. Because you and I aren't born as children of God. The Bible says we're born as enemies of God. The wrath of God is stored up against our sins, and our sins separate us from God. But God seeks to deliver us, to offer us salvation from that penalty. And notice how the term redemption then factors into this. To be redeemed is to be set free or to be liberated. The picture here is a a prisoner confined in a cell and he's unable to unlock the door to get out. And along comes the Lord and only the Lord and the Lord has the key to unlock that door and allow the prisoner to leave. This is a great image of our spiritual condition, is it not? Locked in bondage? Jesus holds the key. Some believe that they hold the key and they can walk out at will. Some believe the door is open, but I'll get to it someday, just not right now. Some believe that the door is open, but they like the way things are in the cell. They're not too interested in leaving all that behind. Some don't even believe they're in prison, and sadly, some know the door is open, but don't believe that they themselves can walk out. Later in Luke, Jesus is going to quote Isaiah, saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim release to the captives and to set free those who are oppressed. You see, Jesus is quite pleased to deliver, and he is quite pleased to free. He rescues. He rescues from danger. This word is used together with redemption. Again, the Exodus is in mind here, back in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. God says, I am the Lord. I will bring you forth from the power of the Egyptians, and I will rescue you out of servitude. And I will redeem you with an upraised arm and with great judgment. You see, these things that they were about to take place, this salvation or deliverance or redemption or rescue, that these things would happen, is huge because there was a major, major problem. This is a monumental problem. I would call it a 600-year-old problem in the day of Zacharias. notice in our text that this redeemer must come from the throne of King David. And do you know who is on the throne in the land when Gabriel shares this with Zacharias? A man named Herod. Herod the Great or King Herod. He is certainly not of the line of King David. And for a Jew like Zacharias to sit and ponder history, before that incident in the temple that day, and to try to bring all this together and think about where he is in this line. I mean, that's like taking a nice fat gulp of a bitter, stale cup of discouragement. Ugh. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a covenant with King David. I will establish the throne of your son's kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me Forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Then came Solomon. Then the kingdom split into two. It's civil war. There's a north. It's Israel. They fall to Assyria. There's the south. There's Judah, including Jerusalem. They fall to Babylon. No Jewish king returned to the throne of David. In this time, world powers are trading blows. There's the Persians. There's the Greeks. Now there's the Romans. That's King Herod. So now, seemingly out of the blue, God's going to raise up a powerful redeemer from the house of David. I mean, that's incredible. Imagine Zacharias. It's almost difficult to believe. In fact, the horn of salvation, that language in our text, it's meant to really pack a punch. The horns of an animal symbolize strength. It was uh, their, their, um, their show of power. So the Lord here is not merely going to raise up a redeemer. He's going to raise up a mighty redeemer. As a side note, this reminds us that there are no dead ends with God. That God is always at work. No one could have predicted this. That God is going to work to bring about a redeemer. I mean, no man can come up with a scenario to make this happen. Rome, again, is occupying Jerusalem. Zacharias can't bring it about. I mean, his role was to wait patiently, or I might add quietly. And when he did speak, he spoke forth the Old Testament, reminding us that God keeps his promises and that God is able to redeem. And he does it in ways that we don't expect, in ways that we don't see coming, in ways we couldn't even fathom. That's a good word for believers this morning. No matter the outlook, God keeps His promises. And God is able to bring about answers to prayer in ways that we can't even imagine. That's a little more of a side note. Again, this morning we're up to the big picture on what's happening in our text here today, the big picture of the Christmas story. And we see secondly in verses 70-75 here that God delivers redemption through a chorus of Prophecy. We began by seeing this through the mute man as Zacharias began to speak, but now there's a chorus of prophecy that, that chimes in and sings of this redemption. In verse 70, Zacharias observes a long line of prophecies that predicted this. But this idea of prophecy, this has the same problem as the concept of the throne. I mean, just as there had been no King David to pass down the throne to this coming king, so, too, had there been no prophet in the land. These are called the silent years. For 400 years, God had not sent a prophet to his people. Zacharias is on the tail end of those 400 years. If I could put this in perspective for you, for you to sit here this morning, in 2023, the last time God sent a prophet was in the era of William Shakespeare. That's how long it'd been silent. That's how long they'd been waiting. The final prophet, Malachi, spoke almost the final verse of the Old Testament in chapter four, verse five. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And then it's silence. With that prediction just hanging out there. No doubt, Zacharias and others wondering, who's this going to be? When's this going to happen? Alexander McLaren, a Scottish minister, says it this way, John was the Elijah. They wore the same garb, the same isolation, the same fearlessness, the same grim, gaunt strength, the same fiery energy of rebuke. And of course, Jesus would come along and say that John himself is the Elijah to come. So Zacharias has a lot to be excited about. His very son is going to be the one to introduce this Jesus. Because before all those years of silence, a salvation was predicted. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now notice there, God is promising the nation a physical deliverance. There's going to be a military victory from Israel's enemies. Now we know that in his first arrival, Jesus did not provide this. There was a lot of expectation for him to do that. You might remember at certain places throughout the Gospels, there's this enthusiasm about what he's going to do. And that, in part, is true. The Messiah is going to do that. But in his first arrival, Jesus dealt with spiritual enemies, which might make us wonder which was more important to him in that first arrival. In his second coming, at the end of the Great Tribulation, the fulfillment of this physical deliverance, that will happen. There will not be a beating heart of one of Israel's enemies to remain at that time. So there's this certainty of both a physical and a spiritual deliverance. And Zacharias is excited about this, I think. He's excited about this faithfulness of a God. He's bringing about the salvation of his people, and in doing so, he's keeping his promises. In verse 72, he's showing mercy toward our fathers, remembering our holy covenant, his holy covenant, specifically the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. Now God never forgets a promise. God never fails to keep a promise. And for him to make a promise to Abraham was a great act of mercy. God seeing the human condition and stepping down in its distress and making a promise to bless God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so shall you be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that salvation that God delivers fulfills this portion of Abraham's promise. All families, not only Israelites, but all families are blessed with the invitation to come know the one true God. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 promises, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. So we hear in that promise, a promise of salvation, it goes even beyond your blood type. It has to do with faith in Jesus Christ. And you notice as well in um, Zacharias' prophecy, he sees there's work to do. And we've heard it said that those who are saved are saved to serve. This praise is a prophetic fulfillment of that. He's referring specifically to serving without fear and in holiness and righteousness. But we need to see here this morning that the salvation of God, the birth of Jesus, and this comes as a result of a long line of prophecy. And though Zacharias will answer the question in just a moment, what will this child turn out to be? Who's he been talking about? His son. He's been speaking about, excuse me, (laughs) he's speaking about the Lord. He's been speaking about God. Verses 68 through 75 so far, they're all about the Lord fulfilling his promises. I mean, this is two thirds of Zacharias' prophecy. Now, he's going to get to John in just a moment, but he's been talking about the Lord and what the Lord's going to do. And I think that we need to see here, if this is going to be anything, it needs to be about the Lord. This needs to be about God, and that's what Zacharias is proclaiming here. I'm sure Zacharias is thrilled about John. I'm confident that he and Elizabeth cannot wait to have a son and that he's going to be a dad, but but this is bigger than that. His heart is caught up in the glory of God, and this begins with God. And for Zacharias, the gift without the giver, I think it loses a lot. You see, for Zacharias, he knows that what gifts we bring into this world, that doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter what skills we may acquire while we're here or what our potential is. Jesus will say, after all, that there's not arisen anyone greater than John. What a thing to have said about you. Zacharias knows it doesn't matter who our parents are. John surely had a priestly pedigree, but what matters is the Lord. And that's where Zacharias begins. That's the bulk of his prophecy, that he gets the priority, that he gets the praise. I think that's a good lesson for you and I, to make sure that our lives are consumed by God, that they are directed more Godward than they would be in any other direction. And it's to John then, this brand new baby that Zacharias now turns. He, he gets to speaking about his son here at the end. In verses 76 through 79, God declares redemption through a wilderness hermit. In verse 76, a new child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zacharias here makes a prediction. There's almost a, a solemnness to this prediction. In essence, he's giving a charge to his son, to this baby boy. In verse 76, John will be called the prophet of the Most High. That's a very popular name for God in the Psalms, but especially in Daniel. And this title for God, it captures quite clearly his his absolute sovereignty. This captures the the fullness of God and his rule. And since, as we mentioned earlier, there has not been a prophet in the land for centuries, this is a really big deal. John is going to offer a unique service to God, something that the land has not seen for generations. And the text says that John will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. That word can be translated as roads or highways. The image here is of a an ambassador going on behalf of a king out in front of him to prepare the way and to get people ready for his arrival. And Zacharias is quoting another part of the Old Testament. It's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. This work is out of town, it's outside Jerusalem, outside that city center, that important religious place. This work is in that more abstract of places. It's less traveled. He's in the wilderness. And John's going to give the Lord's people, quote, the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. And this is really the core. This is how John prepares the people for their king. He gives them knowledge of salvation. And notice here how salvation takes on a distinctly spiritual aspect. If back in verse 71 we saw a physical deliverance, here it's specifically spiritual. A major part of John's mission was to tell people how they could be forgiven of their sins. We get a snapshot of that ministry later in Luke chapter 3, verse 3. When John's time came, he stepped out and began his ministry. Verse 3, he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John preached. That word has fallen out of favor in our day. There are other Greek words Luke could have used there. There's a Greek word for sharing. For storytelling. There's a Greek word for suggesting. None of those words are the words Luke selected for John's ministry. John preached. He proclaimed. On one sense, he exhorted. In another, he warned. And John preached a baptism of repentance. To repent means to turn. It is to change one's mind, to be thinking something this way, but then to be thinking it that way, to believing something this way, to be believing it that way. It is to turn. That's repent, a repentance. And when that happened, baptism followed. Baptism is simply showing outwardly what happened inwardly. Repentance, remember, repentance shows itself in works. You and I often talk about repentance in terms of stopping doing something or I'm going to repent and I'm no longer going to sin. But it also means to begin to do things. To repent would be to start doing different things. So baptism here is one of the first acts of obedience where there's repentance. And John <laughs> preached a baptism of repentance. How's that finish? For the forgiveness of sins. There can be no forgiveness without repentance. At the same time, there can be no guilt once forgiven. That's how certain God's forgiveness is, how sure His guarantee is for all who come to Him in Jesus Christ. Have you turned? believing the Lord's verdict in Scripture that it says that you sin and that you are a sinner? Have you turned trusting his son Jesus that he paid the price for your sins? Have you turned receiving Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord? And if you have, something has changed and that's a good thing. To borrow from Zacharias' imagery in verses 78 and 79, we would say that a light went on. A light went on for the believer. For Zacharias in his time, it's been just this dreary darkness that's been hanging over the land for years. There's been no prophets. There's been no kings, at least Jewish kings at any rate. The priests seem to have been messing it up pretty good at the temple. You can read Jesus' assessment of that in the Gospels. But oh, to be in his day and to have some, some flicker of light to have some light or some lamp, some candle come on. And now that's all about to change. The dawn from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness. And that's what Jesus has done for you, believer. He stepped into your life and he's turned the light on. And you need to know this Christmas that Jesus definitely came in a manger. And you need to know that he definitely came for you. And you need to know that he definitely came as the climax of a long line of prophecies. God sent John before him. And he's going to be the servant of that salvation. We saw beginning in Genesis that God told Abraham that he's going to bless all the nations. Well, God sent the voice of mercy to declare that God did not forget his promise. In Exodus, Israel suffered in slavery. God rescued them. God delivered them. God sent a man then who preached a freedom that only Jesus can give. After his prophecy to David that this throne would endure forever, the monarchy first split, then it crumbled. King after king after king faltered, but God's prophet came. And he announced that there would be a perfect king, and that perfect king is the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel reaped what she sowed. The prophets did not lose hope, however. Israel, or Isaiah, saw Assyria come in and take down Israel. He heard them pound in the very gates of Jerusalem. That's in Judah. They were that close. He predicted the ministry of a man who would come and go before the Messiah to prepare his ways, God fulfilled that. And when Jerusalem did fall, a man named Daniel, a prophet, a captive, he spoke of a God who is most high, who is absolutely sovereign, who is completely faithful, and God's servant in the desert pointed to him and announced him, and Malachi, by the way, was also right, just before that light went out, that God would send a prophet to clear the way. John was born to Zacharias and Elizabeth. The Christmas story didn't just pop up. This has been a long time coming from Genesis to Malachi. And this is a great scene to remind us that God has been working to bring about your salvation. What then will this child turn out to be? Well, something pretty amazing. But if you think he's impressive... Where do you meet the child we talk about next Sunday? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the magnitude and the wisdom of your plan. No man could invent such a perfect plan. You've brought it about. You've never failed to keep a promise. And we gather here this morning as wealthy recipients of the grace of Jesus Christ and your deliverance. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that we know him. That means the world to us, Lord. It is priceless and we desire nothing like we desire Christ. I pray for us that you would grant us a grace to see the magnitude of your plan, to see the bigness of your beauty, and to worship you in new and deeper ways. Oh, Father, we are thankful for this season, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.